Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you to all the new listeners to the podcast. It's been nice to see the downloads start creeping up again after the loss of so many listeners when Stitcher was taken down. I also appreciate everyone's kind words and their reviews and their posts on Facebook. You have no idea how motivating it is for someone who has poured a lot of his heart and soul into this podcast since starting at the beginning of the summer. There's a long road ahead, but the support from you guys goes a long way in the marathon that is getting a podcast up and running. And let's quick cover the business side of things before we get into today's episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. A serpent or snake is used by many different religions as a physical manifestation of evil. In Christianity, a snake convinces Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Norse mythology speaks of a sea snake that grows large enough to encircle the world and assist in the Norse apocalypse Ragnarok. And in ancient Egypt, the snake god Apep was said to represent darkness and disorder. Apep was the direct opponent of the highly worshipped god Ra, who brought light and order to the world. Egyptian priests were tasked with using prayer and ritual to help Ra defeat Apep, as it was thought that Apep could grow large enough to shatter the underworld and destroy the world of the living. Egyptians believed this practice worked, and Ra was able to keep Apep in the underworld. But while the living were safe from the coils of the serpent god, the dead needed protection as well. Known as the Eater of Souls, Egyptian funeral rituals include spells, paintings, and carvings that protected the deceased and the afterlife from being consumed by Apep. While belief in Apep mostly died out with the collapse of ancient Egypt, the deity's place in history was reinforced in 2004 when a near-Earth asteroid was found by deep space observation. The 370 meter in diameter asteroid was given a 2.7% chance of hitting Earth. While an asteroid this size does hit Earth every 80,000 years or so, it would need to be around 30 to 40 times larger to wipe out life on Earth. But an asteroid this size hitting a major metropolitan area would be catastrophic. The asteroid was given the name 99942 Apophis, the Greek word for Apep. It reached the highest recorded danger scale for a near-Earth collision before new calculations in 2013 lowered the chance of an Earth impact to zero. The same year, scientists breathed a collective sigh of relief about 99942 Apophis not taking any human lives, a monster from the human race claimed four lives for Apep. This is the story of Nico Jenkins. Omaha, Nebraska, while being nestled deep in the American Midwest, is a town troubled by crime. Its crime rate consistently ranks higher than one would expect for this urban oasis in the land of farms and rolling prairies. The city of half a million people has seen an average of around 30 to 35 homicides a year over the past two decades, which is about twice the homicide rate compared to the U.S. average. 
In 2013, four of those homicides were committed at the hands of a man named Nico Jenkins, who would later claim the killings were done to appease the Egyptian god Apep. Before we dive deeper into his rationale for his heinous actions, let's discuss the crimes themselves. On August 11, 2013, at 5.01 a.m., two Omaha PD patrol officers were dispatched to a parking lot of a swimming pool after someone noticed a white Ford pickup parked in the lot. Upon approach, they noticed it was occupied by two Hispanic males, and the males appeared to have been shot and were likely deceased. The officers confirmed there were two dead males, later identified as 29-year-old Jorge Cailla Ruiz and 26-year-old Juan Yaribe Peña in the truck, and the men had been shot in the head. Their pants pockets were turned inside out, indicating the murders had occurred as part of a robbery, or the scene was at least staged to look like a robbery. Not much is available about the two victims in this case, but investigators were able to locate information on why the men had come to the parking lot. Information was obtained that indicated the men had driven to the parking lot where they had believed they would be meeting two women to exchange money for sexual activities. While it was initially reported that the men believed they were meeting two different women, one woman, 39-year-old Christine Bordeaux, was eventually charged with assisting in the robbery, claiming she sent the two victims' messages acting as two women, agreeing to meet the men in the parking lot to exchange cash for the sexual activities. Christine would eventually be charged with being a felon in possession of ammunition and aiding and abetting first-degree robbery. So we're going to break down each of these crimes uh, a little bit individually here and later. This is an interesting case because most of the focus of this case from the national media to the local media was in regards to the killer and i mentioned in the introduction he's eventually going to claim that he did these killings to appease this egyptian god which anytime there's something as sensational as that of course it's going to catch on with media unfortunately what gets lost in this entire story and i i dug everywhere i could i tried to look for obituaries for these guys is the victims themselves so we'll, we'll talk a little bit again about each crime and what's going to be different we'll talk about this as well later is each of these crimes is going to be different in the way that it looks from the outside as well as from the investigation itself when when we talk about each of these crimes we're going to notice a very different pattern of the modus operandi of the killer here and that's not common in this is going to be considered a spree killer because there's going to be four killings in about 10 days. So there's not really what that classic cooling off period that would then denote it as a serial killer. But a lot of the times spree killers, although they aren't serial killers in the sense that they don't have that cooling off period, they'll still use the same method to find, locate, isolate, and eventually kill their victims. And we're going to see, again, three very different patterns, because this is going to be the only double homicide. The others are going to be singles. But we're going to see three very different patterns of actions leading up to and to include the murder in each of these cases. So we have this case. And again, there's actually going to be another woman who is involved in this case. And we're going to talk about her involvement later. 
when I originally started researching this, it made it sound like this Christine Bordeaux, who's going to be the cousin of the suspect, was mainly behind the facade of meeting these guys to exchange cash for sex. But we're also going to find out that the suspect's sister is going to be involved as well. So while it didn't directly say it in any of my research, I'm going to assume that these women either worked together or he convinced both of them to send messages so it appeared like there was going to be two women but these guys are going to be found in the truck in this parking lot and it's pretty devastating the weapon that's going to be used to kill all four people are going to is going to be the same weapon it's going to be a, a 12 gauge shotgun loaded with deer slug and so this is a very large, very heavy, very powerful round that's being shot at a person from a pretty close distance. So it's going to be without question very early on that these two guys are deceased and one guy I think was actually shot through the hand so he actually had the natural reaction to try to defend himself so he definitely saw his death coming and we're going to see the classic telltale signs of a robbery. And one thing that makes these outdoor or vehicle crime scenes a lot more difficult than, say, a house is, as we just talked about with the, the Harper family uh, murders, oftentimes when a murder occurs inside of a residence and the primary motive for that crime is murder, we'll have suspects try to make it look like a burglary gone wrong or a home invasion robbery and it's difficult to mimic uh, especially veteran crime scene technicians investigators or officers that have seen actual burglaries or actual home invasion robberies before when a murder occurs and it, somebody's staging it to look like that oftentimes it's pretty obvious that that was secondary that it was used the, the, the scene is staged when you have smaller crime scenes, or in this case, vehicles, or in some cases just a, a deceased person out in the middle of a field or wherever it might be, the crime scene is much smaller and it's very easy for somebody to manipulate that scene to make it look like there was a different motive for the crime. In this case, they're gonna be meeting supposedly some sex workers and so they're bringing cash and this is not to generalize based off of race or anything like that but in my experiences in law enforcement there's certain segments of society that tend to carry large amounts of cash on them and that may be people involved in the drug business and a lot of times immigrants or migrant families they get paid in cash, they carry a lot of cash, they don't often have bank accounts. So they become targets or victims of robberies. And, and there's other races in the cases of uh, there's certain ethnicities that believe in holding a large amount of gold in their personal possession. And the same thing, they might not be using banks. And so Oftentimes, the city that I worked for had a large population of these people, and they would be targeted for things like burglaries because 
it was known that people of this certain ethnicity would possess a lot of gold, whether it be jewelry or even gold bars or coins. So unfortunately, robbery is going to look like a very good motive for this crime. However, it does seem to be a pretty poor way to commit a robbery in terms of what you're actually probably going to get. Obviously, and for good reason, murder is the most penalized crime you can commit, and you're probably going to get a couple hundred dollars for committing two murders here. Whereas you could walk into a bank, and we've seen, as we've covered different bank robbery cases on this, people have walked out with 10, 20, 100, 1,000 times as much money as you're going to get out of this double murder without killing anyone. Bank robbers go to prison for a long time, but... You know, committing a double murder, especially in a state with the death penalty, it seems to be a really high-risk situation for a couple hundred dollars. So, again, as investigators look at this, though, they don't have at this time any idea. So all they have is their crime scene. They realize these guys were lured to the scene. And it's not the first time anybody's been lured to a situation for something like either uh, sex work or drugs and then killed to be robbed of, of a few hundred dollars cash. So it's not like this is the most unheard of crime, but at the same time, it's gonna be more difficult to track down the suspects at this point. And then while they're working on that, a week after the double homicide, investigators were sent to the report of another homicide in the city. At 7 a.m. on August 19th, the body of 22-year-old Curtis Bradford was found outside a garage about five miles north of the double homicide location. Curtis had been shot twice, both times in the back of the head. Curtis had recently got out of prison, but was planning on going to school and trying to get his life back on track. And so, again, this it's not as if Omaha doesn't have any homicides. We talked about it early on. They average somewhere around 30 to 35 a year so and whether you're in the south or especially in the north murders ramp up during the summer more people are out during the day the days are longer so it's just more common for there to be homicides so to have this double homicide and then a week later a homicide on kind of the other side of town i guess the north side the first homicide is south the second homicide is north it's probably not going to raise a lot of alarm bells and again in the first case you have a couple guys out looking to purchase some sex work activities and in this case you have a guy who's recently released from prison who appears to have been executed in the back of the head the only thing you have in common is you're going to have this 12-gauge deer slug used as ammunition, and it's going to be the same ammunition in both cases. So that's likely going to lead to some speculation that these homicides could be related, but at the same time, you're looking at two very different types of crimes. There's not going to be obvious signs of a robbery in this case. There's not going to be signs that anybody lured this guy in for sex work or drugs or anything like that and we'll, we'll talk more about what's going on here with this homicide later on in the case but from an investigator's point of view you do have two separate homicides three people now killed within a week 
using the same type of ammunition. And sadly, it's only going to take two days later for the last homicide to occur. This is going to involve a 33-year-old mother of three named Andrea Kruger. And she'd been working the late shift as a bartender at an Omaha bar, and she left work around 1.45 a.m. to drive home. Roughly 15 minutes into her drive, another vehicle attempted to run her off the road, and then she was pulled from her vehicle and shot four times in the face, neck, and shoulder, and was left to die in the roadway while her killer jumped into her SUV and drove away. Her vehicle was found with the interior partially burned out around 6.30 p.m. that same day, and investigators believe it had been left there around 4.30 a.m. and someone had tried to start the vehicle on fire, but their feeble attempts failed. With four homicides in 10 days, investigators had been working hard to put an end to the killings. They had identified some of the individuals involved in the crimes, but were trying to build evidence concerning the person behind the killings. And again, now we have three very different incidents involving four murders. Again, the ammunition used is going to be the same, this 12-gauge deer slug. But if you look at, we've already talked about number one, cash for sex work. Two, no real money motivator involved. And number three, it appears like a carjacking and that this woman was shot and killed for no reason. So from the outside, without 2020 hindsight, without knowing these are all connected and the reasoning behind the killings, is this is, again, going to be very abnormal for these officers. Had Again, had they all three incidents involved carjacking? Sure, we're connecting them that way. Had all three of them involved drugs or sex work? I guess you can connect them that way. You've got three different, very different victim types, uh, two Hispanic males, Curtis is a black male, and Andrea Kruger's a white female. So we don't have a set victim type. We don't have a set motive. Uh, it appears to be changing. And so it's gonna be rather lucky when police are called for an unrelated terroristic threats call on August 13th that they end up arresting a 26-year-old man named Nico Jenkins. It soon became clear to them that the man was linked to several of the people that had evidence of being involved in the murders, and Nico was likely the man responsible for these murders. Nico Jenkins was born on September 16, 1986 in Colorado. He is one of six children born to Lori Jenkins and David McGee. David was a convicted felon who died from natural causes in 2009, and Lori Jenkins is a convicted felon and will play a crucial role in the murders. Two of Nico's sisters, Melanie Jenkins and Lori Sales, are convicted felons. Lori was present at the murder of Curtis Bradford, but did not participate, and would actually cooperate with the prosecution of her brother. And then two of Nico's sisters appear to have moved away and little is known about them, and Nico's final sister, Erica Jenkins, would be deeply involved in the murders. So there was this newspaper article about this family, and basically they called them one of the deadliest families in America. This is... Other than these two sisters that aren't even named, that appear to have moved away, likely have nothing to do with this criminal family of theirs, every single other person in this family tree is a convicted felon at some level, and many of them are going to have involvements in these murders. And we're going to get into Nico's history here very shortly, but... From a very young age, Nico's going to be surrounded, whether it be his uncles, his parents, siblings, he's going to be surrounded by criminality and violence. 
At age seven, Nico brought a loaded gun to his elementary school, and by eight years old, he was being seen by a doctor for various mental illness-related concerns. During his early teens, Nico got pulled into the allure of criminal gang life and started committing crimes as part of the gang to include thefts, assaults, and carrying weapons. Before he was even an adult, he was arrested for carjacking with a deadly weapon, and the judge sentenced the 17-year-old Nico to 18 to 21 years in prison for his crimes. Nebraska has a one-for-one system in prison, so for every year spent in prison, one year is also reduced from an inmate sentence. This reduction in time can be affected by crimes committed during incarcerations such as assaults, escape attempts, or prison violations, and Nico earned himself one extra year for his actions during incarceration, but was released after only 10 years. Later, Nico would claim he notified prison officials and others that he felt his mental illnesses would create problems outside prison, but he claimed his pleas for help were ignored. Nico's released from prison on July 30th of 2013 and started his murder spree just roughly 12 days after his second chance at life. To best break down all the crimes, we'll look at not just Nico's involvements, but how many people in his life contribute to his heinous crimes. Despite being a convicted felon, Laurie Jenkins kept several guns in her possession as she claimed it was for her own protection. When Nico was released from prison, he returned to live with his mother, and this gave him access to the guns. Shortly after he started living with his mother, investigators learned Laurie made a trip to a local sporting goods store and purchased 12-gauge deer hunting slugs and 9mm ammunition that eventually ended up in Nico's hands. There's two different articles out there that state how Nico got his hands on the guns. One said they came from his mother, that she had these guns, he came home, basically now he had access to them. Another said that there was a prison release party. Basically, they rented a hotel room when Nico got out of prison, and they had this welcome back to the world party with Nico. And this is very contested because there are eyewitnesses that claim this didn't exist, and there's eyewitnesses that claim that a family friend gifted Nico this 12-gauge shotgun at his prison release party. So, again, what we do have is a man with severe mental health issues, a propensity for violence against others, and basically the day he's getting out from prison, his mother is buying him ammunition, and people are giving him guns. And it was shortly after this that Nico employed the help of Christine Bordeaux and his sister Erica Jenkins to lure the first two victims to the parking lot. According to court documents, Erica was at the scene of the double homicide and served as a distraction while Nico snuck into some nearby woods until he was close to the truck and then ambushed the men, shooting them each in the head with the deer slug ammunition that was purchased by his mother. The victims had agreed to meet the women at the park to exchange cash for sexual activities, so Nico and Erica knew there was a high likelihood the men would have cash on them. Any money they did have on them was taken by Nico emptying their pants pockets and billfolds. And while I can't condone the actions of the two victims, as their behavior could have supported the evils of sex trafficking, they also did not deserve to be killed, and no one deserves to die for any amount of money, let alone a few hundred dollars. And so everybody knows, I mean, that listens to my show, I always try to honor the victims. This is one of those tough cases, I mean, just because these guys were going to go exchange cash for sex activities with sex workers again doesn't mean that they deserve to die that's i don't condone their behavior because 
whether it's a a woman who's just trying to make ends meet and she turns into sex work whether it's somebody who's down on hard times involved in drugs or whether it's the evils of sex trafficking at play here that's a whole argument for another day but at the end of the day these guys did not deserve to be shot and killed for probably a, a few hundred dollars in cash and I again I couldn't find anything about their history it, it mentioned that their families didn't appear in court this is probably because they either couldn't get there a lot of the times these migrant worker especially in guys in their mid to late 20s they're traveling around the country doing manual labor jobs such as roofing storm repair whatever it might be so they might be far away from their family when the murders occurred so it might be difficult for the family to get to omaha during the trial it said the families followed uh, nico's trial but it, they weren't in the courthouse but because i couldn't find obituaries i don't know if these guys were married i don't know if they had children i don't know anything about it but again they're human beings just because they were there doing something that i don't condone doesn't mean that they deserve to die and erica later told her sister Lori that she was present at the scene of the double homicide and took off running when she heard Nico fire the shots that killed the two men. The killing of Curtis Bradford was a little more strange for investigators. Curtis had been a prison friend of Nico's, and it was said that Nico or someone close to Nico got a hold of Curtis and offered him a chance to join them for what they called a lick, which is street talk for committing a robbery. And I saw Curtis's age two different ways. One said 22 and one said 33, and... Nico referred to him as like his little brother and Nico I think at this point is 26 years old so maybe Curtis is 22 again what frustrated me about investigating this case was not the amount of information out there about Nico Jenkins and all of his issues it was the lack of information about these victims I really wish media would focus more time on uncovering these victims and what they have going on in their life which is again what something i'm trying to change through this podcast is is focus on these victims a little bit more but again according to the sources i read even though curtis is out of prison now trying to get back on track whether he felt compelled to or whatever it might be he shows up to meet nico to go participate in this robbery and this is where the nine millimeter ammunition comes in apparently is they ha- i think at some point they handed curtis this nine millimeter assault rifle that was going to be his to use during this robbery or something and initially i thought somewhere i had read in one of the articles that it was the nine millimeter rifle that was used to kill uh, curtis but then in other places i read it was it was the shotgun again so Again, not a ton of information about these crimes, but I'm doing the best I can with the facts I could find. So Curtis and Nico had posed for a photo that was posted to social media just hours before he was killed. The photo showing the two men embracing and smiling. According to witnesses who were in the vehicle that evening, Erica and Nico convinced Curtis to join them on a robbery. But at some point, Erica pointed the shotgun at the back of Curtis's head and pulled the trigger. The shot somehow must not have immediately killed Curtis, and Nico grabbed the gun from his sister and fired a second shot into Curtis's head, killing him instantly. Erica would go on to tell family members that she was upset at Nico for, quote, stealing her first kill, end quote, after the murder of Curtis Bradford. Two days later, Nico, Erica, and their uncle, another convicted felon named Warren Levering, were driving around late in the evening when they spotted Andrea Kruger's vehicle. Nico stated he wanted a SUV to commit 
more crimes, so he ran Andrew's vehicle off the road, pulled her out, and shot her four times with a shotgun before jumping to his last victim's SUV and leaving the scene of the crime. According to reports, it was Warren who eventually parked the SUV and retrieved a gas can from the house of a relative near where the vehicle was abandoned and tried to use gas to burn the SUV and destroy evidence of the crime. A search warrant was conducted after the killing and a bag containing the shotgun used in the murders as well as a 9mm assault rifle were found in an apartment. Investigators had witnesses that saw Nico bringing the bag into the apartment after Andrea was killed. Investigators were initially baffled by the difference in the crimes and a complete disregard for human life. Nico's murders were rare in that they crossed ethnic, racial, and gender barriers and all occurred for different motives. But if they thought the case was confusing at that point, it was about to get a lot worse. While Nico would make a full confession to the crimes, he claimed he had conducted the killings after receiving orders to do so from the Egyptian god Apep, who spoke to him in his mind. Nico claimed he was an earthly vessel and was commanded by the god of darkness to kill people as a sacrifice to the serpent god. Despite his outrageous claims, investigators and prosecutors had to move forward with the case and gathered as much evidence to include witness statements to prepare for a trial involving the mentally unstable Nico. Initially, Nico was quite cooperative and even somewhat sympathetic with investigators and prosecutors. After his arrest in the fall of 2013, he told them that he wanted to plead guilty to the crimes to avoid putting the victim's families through the trauma of a trial to include graphic crime scene photos of their loved ones. But by the following spring, Nico had become much more uncooperative, claiming that he was being abused by the criminal justice system and his human rights were being ignored. He re requested to represent himself, but the judge declared that Nico had to have attorneys that would at least advise him of his rights during the process. A plea deal was offered to Nico, but it did not include taking the death penalty off the table. Nico would plead guilty to the four murders in exchange for no trial, but the judge could still sentence him to death. Nico began a campaign of blaming the prison system for releasing him without proper mental health assistance, and then vacillated between asking for the death penalty and pleading the judge to take it off the table. The judge ordered Nico to go through an extensive psychological exam, a process that would ultimately decide Nico's fate. A year of intensive psychological study under secure custody was completed to better assess and understand Nico's mental status. And so we've talked about this before on these cases. You know, there, there's a big difference within the court system. We're going to talk about it here in a little bit, but between somebody trying to plead guilty by reason of insanity some states have the guilty but the crime was committed with mental illness there's other times that the psychological exams are used to see if the person is even fit to stand trial and in this case it's actually going to be whether or not nico has the mental clarity enough to actually do a plea bargain deal uh, they have to make sure that he can understand the ramifications of the decision he's going to make. And, and, and we'll actually talk about part of his appeals process. This case, again, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff about the victims were, was lost in this case, and it really became this mental health slash prison system argument uh, that, that, that really pushed it to the national stage in terms of everything that was going on with with Nico and, and his claims and so the judge wants to make sure this is a death penalty case and again 
the prosecutor does not want to take the death penalty off the table. Nico gunned down four people in cold blood for very little reason other than Nico claiming it's to appease this serpent god. So this is a death penalty case 100% in a death penalty state. So the judge, knowing he can't just send Nico to one psychologist who checks a box and says, yep, he can accept his plea, and he understands that accepting the plea means he might get the death penalty. No, go, he goes through a dozen different psychologists, and unfortunately part of this case is that the psychologists themselves don't even agree on Nico's diagnosis. So there's going to be some psychologists that to this day believe that Nico is extremely schizophrenic and doesn't understand the consequence of his actions, that he fits the bill of somebody who is so mentally insane that they shouldn't be put to death. And then you've got other psychologists on the far other side of the spectrum they are saying he's making this all up. He's fully capable of understanding what's going on around him. He's just playing the system. So each psychologist is going to review his history. They're going to spend some time with him asking questions and make observations. And we'll talk a little bit about just the variety of observations and reports that came out of that. So many different doctors assessed Nico, and as I said, they came to a variety of conclusions about the killer's mental state. They all began by reviewing his medical history. Nico spent 11 days in mental health care when he was 8 years old, and during that stay he claimed he heard voices of children telling him to commit crimes such as theft, and he also complained of visions of seeing his father shoot his mother. While some doctors felt there maybe more to what Nico was experiencing as a child, many felt Nico learned from a young age that he could blame aberrant behavior on mental health issues in order to escape culpabilities for his actions. Again, we're going to have some psychologists that look back at that and say, he's suffering auditory and visual hallucinations as an eight-year-old child, and it's only going to get worse for him. And then you've got other psychologists who are looking at saying, no, those voices that he heard was, was literally other kids, older kids that that could impress themselves upon Nico telling him to do things like steal and that these visions he claimed he was having were just nightmares or what some called daymares where he's just his mind goes to a place and just starts thinking about these violent actions between his mother and his father and fearing that his mother is going to be killed so again some psychologists are saying he had severe mental illness including schizophrenia all the way from early on and you have others saying he learned early on that he could commit crimes and then blame it on his mental health so nico underwent various mental health exams as he grew up and during these exams in his preteen and teenage years he failed to disclose any schizophrenic behavior so most doctors noted that the only time nico claimed to hear voices or see imaginary things was after he was caught committing a crime so they felt while Nico had severe behavioral issues, he was choosing to commit acts of crimes and violence and then trying to escape punishment by feigning schizophrenia. While being seen by doctors after the murder spree, several doctors noted that what Nico claimed was going on in his head was not matching the behavior they were seeing. Nico would make claims about hearing voices of APEP and seeing demons, but while most true schizophrenics cannot maintain eye contact as they are distracted by what they are experiencing in their brains, Nico was always able to maintain his composure and seemed to be trying to sell doctors on the idea that his schizophrenia was real. So again, even during these interviews, 
the the majority of the psychologists are looking at him saying he's describing symptoms that are would put him in that area of schizophrenia of potentially multiple personality disorders all kinds of different things he's describing the symptoms but he's not showing any of the signs so he's he's trying to trying to basically tell us what's going on with him but we're not seeing any of the signs of this as reality and several in- incidents un- while under psychiatric care also pointed to Nico's attempts to better his situation using his claimed mental health issues. When he was placed into a room he didn't like, he broke the fire sprinkler and later told the doctor that he broke the device while experiencing a schizophrenic episode, but if he was given an electronic device and headphones to listen to music, he could drown out the voices and he wouldn't cause any more issues. However, if they didn't give him a device and they put him back in the room, he was sure he would have another episode. So this is just one example of, you know, there's going to be a psychologist or two that look at this and say, okay, this, this seems reasonable, but the majority of them are going to look at it and say, he's just playing the system. He's just faking some stuff in order to get things that he wants. And when he doesn't get things that he wants, he's going to act up again in a way that is, he thinks people are going to believe that he has this, these issues. And doctors would point out to the perceived control that he had over what most would have as a difficult time controlling such an affliction, such as schizophrenia, as proof that Nico was faking his episodes to try and get what he wanted out of any given situation. Now, there was a point in which Nico, I think he broke a tile in his room or something like that, and the sharp edge of the tile he used to mutilate himself and included his body and included his genitals so that it would look like it was a snake and so you know there were some psychologists that looked at that and said it would take a certain depraved mind somebody with some severe mental illness to be able to do that to themselves and that some use that as proof that he was he definitely had some severe mental health issues but eventually a majority of doctors ruled that Nico was competent to plead guilty as they felt Nico was capable of understanding that he at least had a choice about entering a plea. And if he changed his mind, further evaluations would need to be done. So again, these examinations were not designed to prove whether or not he was of sound mind at the time that he committed these crimes. That would have been a whole nother years probably of testing and expert witnesses and all kinds of different things getting involved what they were trying to establish was whether or not nico could understand that he had a choice he could plead guilty or he could choose to plead not guilty and request a jury trial or he could use an insanity plea but nico insisted on pleading guilty all while claiming his rights are being violated so the psychiatrist said there's nothing that we're seeing that indicates he does not understand the basic concept of that he has a choice, that nobody is making him plead guilty, that nobody is denying him the right to a jury trial, that nobody's denying him the right to plead guilty by reason of insanity or whatever that might indicate. It's it, They just have to clear that initial hurdle of does he understand? And I mean, it took a year and several different psychologists, but eventually they're going to say, yeah, at that basic level, he can understand. Now, if he changed his mind and said, you know what, I don't want to plead guilty. I want to go to trial. I want to plead not guilty and and face a jury trial. I want to plead guilty, but by reason of insanity. 
again, I think that would have changed a lot of the stuff down the road. He just has to at least make that initial choice. And he chose to plead guilty. And Nika was prone to outbursts during court proceedings, with him often laughing about his crimes, shouting during the prosecutor's presentation of the judge, and going into episodes where he claimed to speak in the tongue of APEP. But ultimately, Nico entered his plea of guilty, and the plea was accepted. The judge sentenced Nico to death, and the entire process was immediately appealed. Everything from Nico representing himself to the mental health issues was brought up under appeal, but the trial and the sentence were affirmed. So there's a really long court document that I read in regards to this case, and it's, it's the appeals decision, and it broke down how the court viewed everything. And this is where I got a lot of the information about these psychological exams and, and what different doctors were observing and what they thought the behavior meant. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the court looked at it and said, all we needed to do was prove that he understood his rights and that he was of sound mind to make a choice at the time that he made the choice. We weren't going to look at his behaviors while committing the crimes. We weren't going to look at his behaviors when he was confessing to police. Whatever it might be, they just focused as a court on the legal issue of whether or not he could enter that plea and did he enter that plea. And then issues regarding his representation of himself. It was documented in the courts that this was explained to him over and over again that he had the right to an attorney and he was choosing to not use attorneys like most people do. He had the right to a jury trial and he because I think it came up too that they appealed the death sentence because they found something in the Constitution saying that death can only be administered by a jury. Well, because he entered a plea, that didn't come into effect. It was since the judge was accepting the plea, there was no jury, the judge could issue the death sentence. So basically everything he appealed was affirmed, and so he lost all of his appeals. So Nico currently sits on death row in Nebraska's prison system. His sister, Erica Jenkins, was sentenced to life in prison for her part in the killings. Then she was sentenced to an additional 20 to 40 years after she beat her cousin, Christine Bordeaux, with a padlock and a sock in a prison they were both incarcerated in for their involvements in Nico's crimes. Several other individuals were put on trial for various crimes related to the killings. Nico's mother received 8 to 10 years for buying the ammunition that was used during the killings, but she maintains that she had no knowledge it would be used to commit the murders. Other individuals were tried and convicted of assisting Nico with obtaining the weapons and hiding evidence after the fact. Ultimately, four people were killed by a man who was raised in a world that accepted and encouraged violence against others. Never one to take the blame himself, he further blamed his actions on being put in solitary confinement so many times while incarcerated, which is an action he also brought upon himself. So there was a lot of talk after this case about the effects of things like solitary confinement in a prison and whether doing that to somebody with pre-existing mental health issues made the situation worse. But the counter-argument to that was, what other options are there? We've already taken this person out of society because they're a danger to others in society and we've placed them into a prison system. When they become a danger to themselves or others within the prison system, solitary confinement is the only recourse these prisons have. You know, some might argue, well, obviously, better access to counseling, whatever it might be. Our prison system is just taxed to the extreme. And so 
while I understand that it would be in an ideal world, everybody going into prison could come out with the best chance of rehabilitation possible. There's just certain individuals, and I definitely think Nico is one of these, that no matter what you do, he was going to come out of prison and he was going to cause harm to others. And so his actions after this actually did change some of the laws in in Nebraska about early release in different sentences, especially for people who are deemed to be potentially cause violence after they were released. So there have been some changes in the system since Nico was released and, and did what he did. But ultimately, again, it, everything when you look at his life, any time that he claims he was mistreated or something bad happened to him, it was after he had already committed some behavior. And this was just the consequence for his behavior. He does something in prison, he gets in a fight with somebody, he's put in solitary confinement, and he's complaining about being put in solitary confinement and doesn't understand if he just didn't get in the fight in the first place, he wouldn't be put in solitary confinement. So, again, that's that's his entire life is nothing is his fault. Everything bad that happened to him had nothing to do with what he did to cause that. And, and unfortunately, before anybody could put an end to, to what he was doing, it Within a short amount of time of him getting out of prison, he killed four people, which included two hardworking men, a former convict and friend of his killer, and a loving wife and mother of three children who grew up without her in their life, and these people are all dead for various and inexcusable reasons. The only silver lining is that Nico will die in prison, one way or another, and this is because Nebraska, while they have the death penalty, that's death by lethal injection, and at least the last article I read was that they ran out of lethal injection drugs in 2015, I want to say it was, and the, because of all the controversies around lethal injection, they weren't planning on ordering more, so it's kind of a unofficial moratorium on the death penalty in Nebraska. Now that may have changed, I didn't look to see what the current status of death penalty in Nebraska is, but... Either way, either he'll die by lethal injection or he'll die by natural causes in prison. And many of those in his family are going to spend a significant amount of time in prison, making the world a much safer place for the rest of us. But that is the case of Killing for APEP. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you guys later. Goodbye.